Partial Historians is a podcast about ancient Roman history. It's hosted by historians Dr. Fiona Ratford and Dr. Peta Greenfield, who discuss, spar, and laugh their way through different aspects of the Roman world. Dr. Rat, Dr. G, welcome to Eurotrash. Hi. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. Um, first off, let me tell you that I am a massive fan of your work and your podcast. You cover so many interesting and well-researched topics, and you cover them in so many different ways. You do long episodes, you do short episodes, you do interviews, you connect ancient history with popular culture like Game of Thrones. But no matter the format, the underlying passion is just like always there. Um, you know, a lot of these ongoing podcasts just kind of lose steam as they go along, but that's totally not the case with you. And for me, as a bit of a new kid on the block, it's really cool to see. So yeah, everybody who's into history and hasn't done it already, go check out The Partial Historians after you finish listening to us. All right. When I reached out to you, I asked if you could propose a topic for this episode, and you immediately uh, suggested that we talk about Augustus's scandalous female relatives, the two Julias. <laughs> now, a bit of a disclosure, I did have Latin in high school a couple of years, picked up a little bit of history in class, just a tiny bit. But honestly, most of my knowledge about ancient Rome comes from the HBO show Rome and from the gladiator, of course, which I gotta admit, Naturally. I still love unashamedly. As a 15 year old, I had it on a golden VHS tape, and I just kept Rewatching it until you know all of my favorite parts, which were basically just Commodus going a bit cray cray, uh, became like white noise. So, long story <laughs> short, since we're not going to be talking about you know Julius Caesar here, I had to do a little bit of reading. Thank you, Wikipedia, about the two Julias, and pretty quickly realized that a the two Julias are not some obscure historical personalities. And B, even though this seems like a quite a specific topic, there's so much stuff we can talk about through their pretty amazing stories. But before we dive into those, I first wanted to ask, what was life in the era of Augustus, the, the first Roman emperor, like for, for women? Or let's say for aristocratic women, to narrow it down a little bit. I know it's a, it, this yeah, is a big question. But let's let's just. It's start a big, big question. It's big, but it's important. So I'm glad that that's where we're starting. To be an aristocratic woman in Augustan sort of Rome, it's a chaotic time. This is a place that has just gone through massive sort of civil wars, and the legacy that we're going to see with the Julias is part of the consequence of a real upheaval that Rome has faced. And there's no question that Rome is in a state of flux. People aren't sure what their lives are going to be like, and they're not sure what decisions are the right decisions to make. And because it's been in a warlike sort of state, I think people are feeling a bit free and easy about, well, maybe feeling a little bit fatalistic. Like maybe I could try anything. I could do anything. I could become anybody under the right sort of circumstances. And there seems to be those tantalizing possibilities for elite Roman women to be free of some of the sort of the legal shackles that they've been constrained to and some of the political shackles as well. But this is going to lead to a lot of really interesting things happening and maybe stirring up a little bit of trouble as well. Yeah, I think that 
in the late Republic, we see far more women who we know by name, we can trace some of their actions, we can trace some of their relationships in a bit more detail because usually with women in Rome, they're not talked about in the same level of detail in terms of you know political developments and that sort of thing as we see for some of the women in the late Republic. And I think that's because we increasingly see men coming to the fore, um, you know, rather than like a body like the Senate, we see individual men, generals, politicians coming more to the fore in the late Republic. And that means that their family members, including the women, have the potential to exercise, I suppose, a little bit more soft power than they might have in a previous period. So you see women like Fulvia, for example, who come to the fore due to her relationship with several politicians, but probably most notably people like Mark Antony. Um, and that I think that is there's the legacy of that as we go into Augustan Rome as well, because with Augustus being sort of the last man standing after the Civil War, it also thrusts his female relatives into more prominence than they might have been previously. Oh, right. I mean, I realize that every historian adores the period they research, of course. And I don't want to instigate a beef between the people I invite to Eurotrash, but I'm going to do just that a little bit. Because I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Nieto Isabel. We talked about women's spirituality and mysticism in the Middle Ages. It was a fascinating um, yeah, conversation. And she said that contrary to popular belief, women enjoyed quite a lot of freedoms in the Middle Ages. It was only when picking up Rome's ancient model of gender roles in the Renaissance do we get this oppression of women that we now associate with that period. Until she said that, I thought, you know, in the words of the great Maximus, a.k.a. Uh, Russell Crowe, Rome is the light. What do you think of that? Look, Rome is definitely a huge patriarchal culture. Of that, there is no question. And in the Augustan period, this is pretty much just as true as for all of Rome's history. And arguably, as we get further into Augustus sort of consolidating his power, it's going to become more patriarchal. And the sort of subversion that you hope for from women is maybe going to be pushed down a little bit harsher by the sorts of things that happen under Augustus's rule. Women have a very distinct place. Um, it's pretty constrained in many respects. The fact that elite women have some freedoms is impressive, but this is not a world that I think women would want to go back in time to live in. Not at all. No, I think it's in comparison to, say, you know, classical Greece, it seems like Roman women have a good okay. deal because they seem to have a bit more freedom than some of the women you read about in, say, you know, Athens. But that's not saying much. <laughs> they're, still, they're still quite constrained and restricted by their gender and the roles that they are required to play. Fair enough. Is it the same for working class women for women who are not aristocrats is it similar or or is it different it's possibly worse um at least aristocratic like for elite women all oh, right great yeah like elite women do get some sort of benefits and particularly what we see under augustus is he has this moral reform legislation which actually frees up some elite women to live um a little bit more on their own terms rather than under the strict guardianship of a male relative. But working class women, women who are enslaved, 
freed women, their constraints are even heavier and they're not really released from a lot of these things. Um, in order for a freed woman, for instance, to gain the same benefits as an elite woman, and this is only for some of those benefits, she has to produce more children than an elite woman would, for instance. So the further down the hierarchy you go, the more difficult your life becomes, essentially. Yeah, because Roman women, one of the things that sets them apart from, say, again, Greek women, just using them as a comparison, uh, they can actually uh, own property. They can, they can inherit and own property in their own right, which if you're an elite woman might mean that you could potentially be wealthy if you happen to have, if you're in a family where, you know, they only have girls or all the men die off or whatever, you know, you might be lucky. <laughs> so you could potentially inherit a reasonable amount of wealth, which might give you a bit more of that sort of, you know, soft power in a sense, because you're a wealthy person, people aren't going to necessarily dismiss you, perhaps. If we go to Julia the Elder now, the daughter of Augustus, how does her story really begin? <laughs> it's controversial, isn't it? Um, so she's born in 39 <laughs> BCE and her mother is a woman called Scribonia. And the real tragedy for Julia starts at the very moment of birth because it's reported that it's on the day that she's born that Augustus leaves Scribonia to marry Livia. So we're not off to a great start. <laughs> great. What a dude. What yeah. a guy. Yeah. 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 Don't let anybody tell you that Augustus is terribly great. He's a pretty horrific guy. Okay. Whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa. Hang on a second. What? Nice. We have been yes, arguing about Augustus. Yeah. <laughs> we have been arguing about Augustus versus Tiberius for so many years, and then it's the first time you have admitted on air how terrible he really is. <laughs> Look, Augustus is my man, but but he is a problem. He is a problem. <laughs> okay. I, I read that novel in letters by that American author about Augustus. I don't know what is it just called Augustus or something? And there he's just pretty much the best guy ever. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. You want to be wary of stories that are the, that one-sided. Yeah. Um, no, Augustus, I mean, he's not not a great guy. I mean, he does leave Scribonia, his wife, on the day that she gives birth to his only living descendant, as it turns out. Although he doesn't know that, of course. He doesn't know that at the time, but uh, he really, really walked away from a good deal yeah. there. Um, in his defense. So he just like ghosted her immediately <laughs> after she gave birth. Yeah, you're dumped. Yeah. In his defense, he had already, I think, set his eyes on Livia before this time. So I don't think it no, was. I got to give the Commodus here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's terrible. But I mean, I don't think it would have been a shock to Scribonia. Exactly. I don't think Scribonia is shocked. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, disappointed, mm, maybe. Um, Julia the Elder is born. Mm. She comes into this world. She's not known as the Elder, obviously. Um, she's just Julia. Um, and it's not long before Augustus is utilizing his daughter, uh, new as she is to this world, to further his political aspirations. This is also going to come across as pretty terrible, but this is also not out of step with what Roman men did with their children, um, regardless of gender. 
So she's engaged very early on. She's about two, uh, I think, when she makes her first engagement. Got to put a ring on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so small. Sorry, she's two years old. She's two years old. When she's old. engaged. Yeah, yeah, she's engaged. So this is some sort of a symbolic arrangement or, or what? Yeah, so the idea is that this promise will come to fruition when she's legally able to wed, which yeah. for an elite Roman uh, girl is the age of 12. Your silence is telling. <laughs> Rome, tell you what. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> silence is the best response. Uh, so around two, she's engaged to um, Antonius, uh, the son of Mark Antony. This is something that is done as a real political move um, connected with a treaty that takes place at Tarentum in that year. And so they're trying to broker a deal because Mark Antony and Octavian, um, Octavian will go on to be Augustus, um, Octavian and Antony don't get along. They're kind of fighting it out over who will get to be the top man in Rome. And this is a moment of potential reconciliation where they're going to marry their children to each other to try and seal the deal for some sort of lasting peace. This doesn't work out at all. And then it's by the time she's about four years old, she's rumored to then have been engaged to a guy called Cotiso, who is a king of the Dacians. And this is supposed to be a new reciprocal arrangement where Augustus will marry one of the daughters of the Dacian king. So he's going to flip off Livia, hook up with this new foreign woman, and also marry his daughter into the Dacian line. So he left Scribonia. It looks like he could possibly just leave Livia as well. And he's already up to his second engagement for his daughter, Julia. Was Julia raised by the famous Livia? Look, it doesn't seem like she spends heaps of time with Livia. Like she must be in that household to a certain extent. But she seems to maintain a really close relationship with her birth mother, Scribonia. And this will come become more clear mm -hmm. as time goes on. Um, so... I think she's definitely in the household of Livia, but to what extent she's seeing her own birth mother, we're not really sure. They seem to be close, though. Yeah, and there, there must have been, I think, like some sort of rivalry, like not necessarily deadly I Claudian type rivalry, but there must have been some sort of rivalry in the sense that obviously it's in Livia's interest and Augustus's interest for them to have their own children who would presumably supersede Julia and the place that she holds in this family. Didn't happen. Livia and Augustus, of course, are the classic case of, you know, all, <laughs> all smoke, no fire. But, yeah, there must have been a little bit of tension, I suppose, in those years when Livia was presumably trying to get pregnant with Augustus's child and it wasn't happening. <laughs> okay, speaking of I, Claudius... Of course, Livia is the ultimate historical baddie there. She's just poisoning people left and right, including her <laughs> husband, the emperor. Like, it's nobody's business. I think that she gives them poison figs or something. It's all yeah. very, I don't know, yeah. it's very sensual in a way. Is there any truth to her villainous reputation? Well, if you ask some of the ancient sources, yes. <laughs> it's probably a little bit of a beat-up. Yeah. Um, 
The ancient sources are pretty invested in maintaining patriarchy the way that they understand it. Livia, as a very elite Roman woman who is in the public eye, is sort of uh, contravening the expectation that women will be in the house, um, that will be uh, seen, not heard, and all of that kind of thing. She does seem to be political and involved in politics and involved in public life in ways that seem to go beyond what conservative Romans expect. And this does lead to a huge amount of backlash that we see in our source material. Did she have favorites, rivals? Probably. <laughs> Is it likely that she murdered her own child, her own husband, all the sorts of the, these sort of rumored stories, it seems maybe a little bit too much. Augustus doesn't divorce her though, even though they don't have a son together, right? He it left. Must have been, you, yeah. you just told me that he left Scribonia immediately when she was when she delivered a child, but he's not like divorcing Livia, his second yeah, wife. Yeah, and I, I, I think this is a huge argument in Livia's favor, to be honest. And it's like if you have somebody in your home who is actively killing off all of the family members, you might want to do something about that and maybe divorce them. So I think we have to assume that the sex life was good. Um, and that they got along on an intellectual level, and that in some ways they're probably soulmates. <laughs> Which isn't saying much because Augustus, we've just acknowledged, oh, nice. is awful. <laughs> and he does sleep around. Like It's not yes. like he's faithful to Livia at all. Yeah, there are, there are rumours, although, again, this is probably part of the, the Livia beat-up, there are rumours that toward, as they get older that Livia starts providing him with young girls to sleep with I suppose, rather than her doing it herself. I'm presuming that's the subtext there. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you provide them, she then at least smart. you know. Yeah, yeah, at least you know who they are then. Yeah. <laughs> but to get back to Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to Julia. So she gets to about the age of 14, 15, and she does get to have her first marriage. This has been completely arranged for her, as is definitely how Rome worked in that time. And she's married to her first cousin, Marcellus. And, you know, it's not so bad. He's about 17, 18 at the time of this marriage. So they're roughly of an age. And what's interesting, the little detail that I quite like about this is that Augustus isn't around when this marriage takes place. He's off in Hispania doing some business. And so it is Agrippa, his very close friend, who conducts the marriage ceremony and weds these two young people together. So this is reinforcing um, the family in many respects because this is Marcellus is the son of Octavia, so Augustus's sister. So Maybe a bit gross, but also... <laughs> it's it, all getting kind of Game Game of thrones a little bit. Oh, it's going to get a lot worse than this, and, yeah. And <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, Cousins is nothing. Cousins is actually quite, quite tasteful. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Are we going ancient Egypt here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Emperor Augustus doesn't have any sons, right? Like we Like we mentioned... So uh, is the main expectation he has for his daughter to produce as many male heirs as possible? Yeah, just bang them out, left, right and center. <laughs> yeah, look, I think in this early period, so this is around this marriage to 
between Julia and Marcellus is in around about 25 BCE. It's probably Augustus's reasonable expectation that there's still a chance to have his own children with Livia. Um, that is a narrowing window of opportunity. Um, so he does recognize that he's kind of got one egg and Rome is the basket. So <laughs> we're going to see what we can do with what we've got. And Marcellus is a great choice. He seems like he's young, up and coming. He's given lots of favor by Augustus. And it seems like Augustus is really pushing forward his career. He does some certain things uh, to create, to smooth the path for Marcellus to really succeed. So allowing him to have a consulship 10 years earlier than what he should. So instead of having to wait till he's 42, he'll be able to hold the consulship when he's 32. He's nowhere near that age yet. So don't worry. But then there's this huge illness that comes through Italy and Marcellus is one of the ones who is sadly taken by this illness and he passes away in 23. So Julia and Marcellus are only married for two years before Marcellus' untimely death. And she's not pregnant when he dies. They have no children as of yet. So she gets married to someone who just appeared in this story as well. What happens yes. next? Yes, exactly. <laughs> the man who had officiated her first wedding becomes her next husband. <laughs> oh, oh. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, she's known. The thing is that Julia is then married to Agrippa. And this is all matter of problematic. One, she's known Agrippa all of her life. It's the guy who officiated her last wedding. Her <laughs> dad's best friend. Dad's best friend. <laughs> yeah. She's 18. 19 he's 42 <laughs> 43 it's it's a little bit distasteful what every little girl dreams of <laughs> and not only that but agrippa has to divorce his current wife who is also a marcella so the sister of marcellus so another cousin has to divorce the cousin in order to marry julia so you've had to break up a marriage in order to make this union happen. And all of a sudden, Julia, she's not even 20 yet. She's now married to a middle-aged dude. But this seems to do the trick. Yeah, this seems to do the trick because this is the guy that she has a ton of babies with. <laughs> yeah, look, yeah. whatever happens between them, it, it yields children. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> At least officially, anyway. <laughs> well, so they, so they say, so they say, yeah. <laughs> but almost immediately after getting married to Agrippa, there were rumors of infidelity on Julia's part. How did the Roman conception of an affair differ from ours? Uh, or was it pretty much the same thing? No, definitely not the same. <laughs> uh, so basically, there are... As you might expect, double standards, depending on what gender you were. So a woman was not allowed to sleep with anyone aside from her husband. And a man had a little bit more freedom. So he's allowed to sleep with anybody who is of a lower status, um, who is not a married citizen, basically. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah. like in this case, um, it would have been fine for Agrippa to sleep around a lot and definitely not okay for Julia to sleep around at all. Yeah, so he could sleep with like a slave girl, for example, in their house and Julia's not supposed to get mad about that. So how bad were these rumours for her? 
Look, I mean, the rumours for her, they end up being pretty bad. Um, They're persistent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think we do have to take into account that everybody is pretty sure that she's a good person. So, like, the way that Julia comes across, she's very popular with the Roman people. She's understood to be kind-hearted, generous with her time, a really nice person. And for a lot of people, this means that they don't necessarily believe the rumours that might be swilling about. But also she does a great job with making sure that all of the children that she has look like a gripper. So she does a really great job. Everybody sees those kids and they're like, he's clearly the dad. And if you've seen statues of Agrippa, and I recommend Ah, the famous quote, right? (laughs) That's right. The famous quote is that she never takes on board passengers unless she already has cargo on board. (laughs) Very clever. (laughs) I mean, what a queen. I'm just a fan right now. Yeah. I'm just appreciating her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, And she seems to be, I think, a bit you know, a bit caught up in these, maybe these new freedoms. You know, we hear stories of her, you know, dressing sort of sexily and provocatively and her father, you know, sort of looking at her and being like, really, that's what you're wearing? And then the next day she'll be dressed, you know, really properly and he'll be like, oh, now that's an outfit. She's like, well, today I dressed for you, Dad. Yesterday I dressed for my husband. (laughs) Yeah, so she's known for being incredibly sassy, very smart, clever, And so she's the kind of person that you want to have come to your parties. Like she continues to have a really wide set of friends. She has lots of connections amongst the elite. She's considered the foremost woman in Rome, second only to Livia. And she's bearing the children that will continue Augustus's line. So like everything's going really well for her during her marriage to Agrippa. Like she has Julius, uh, Gaius Julius Caesar, Um, she has Lucius Julius Caesar and she has Agrippa Posthumus. So she produces three sons, but she also produces two daughters. So she has five kids with Agrippa. And it's like, so nobody can say she is not doing her part to bring the Roman family of Augustus into like, you know, its fullest extent. So whatever's happening, you know, when that is not looking, they're kind of like, you do your thing as long as you're perceived as being a good Roman wife and woman. It's kind of okay with us. Yeah, it does. Kind of it does really seem. I, I, I've actually never asked Dr. G's opinion on this, so I'm going to ask her now. Great time to launch this on her. I've actually always got the impression that Augustus genuinely did not know that she was misbehaving so badly. I mean, oh. if she was sleeping around, like he he knew she was a bit risque. He knew she was a bit, you know, bit looser than he might like. But I always get the impression that he genuinely did not realise the extent of her adultery, or yeah. such such as it may have existed. There yeah, seems yeah. to be a sense of conflict yeah. in the source material. Like there's the version where Augustus genuinely loves Julia as his daughter, like she is part of his world and he's obviously hugely immensely proud of her and she's gone on to produce all of these children, which are just huge ticks. And he seems to have genuinely liked her as a person. So I think there is that version of the narrative that comes through where he doesn't want to believe that the daughter that he loves and he's nourished and is doing so much good work um, producing these children is necessarily doing the wrong thing. Mm. So he's like, you know, she's free spirited. And there is a story where he compares her to another famous uh, chaste elite woman who was not thought to be chaste. 
which is Claudia Quinta. And she's kind of this mythical figure. But people thought that she was um, a little bit immodest in the way that she dressed and the way that she interacted with people. So people thought that she was morally questionable. But it turns out in a moment where she had to prove her modesty and her chastity, she was able to do that in the eyes of the gods. And everyone was like, look, appearances are not everything. It's how you act. And when it comes down to it, Claudia Quinta is an incredibly chaste woman. And so Augustus has this idea that maybe Julia is a bit like that. Something does happen, though, because he changes his mind about Julia. Um, and that will come up soon, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. If we stop at this point where everything is going well for her, what was her daily life like? I read an article that said that she was the ancient version of Kim Kardashian. I don't know if that's a <laughs> fair comparison. Probably not. But some sort of a socialite, hanging out, chilling, throwing sick-ass parties. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she sees herself as one of the quotations that's ascribed to her is that um, uh, they ask her why she's not like behaving in particular ways. And she's like, look, Caesar forgets that he's Caesar, but I don't forget that I'm Caesar's daughter. And what she's meaning by this is that she understands that to be at the pinnacle of Roman society comes with it a certain sense of how you appear. And she's willing to do the appearance. So she's willing to dress in the high fashion. She's willing to hang out with the cool kids. She's willing to go to whichever party is the hottest party in town. She's willing to appear at the games with people that might be slightly disreputable, but mean that people are talking about her. They're like, look who's hanging out with Julia now. And so she does all of that kind of stuff. And she seems very happy to do that. But she's also... On the flip side, quite a dutiful wife. So Agrippa is Augustus's like main military guy. I don't think anybody would argue that Augustus is a great military figure. He outsources a lot of that and he outsources most of it to Agrippa and Agrippa is good at what he does. And so he gets sent over to the east and Julia goes with him. And so she does that whole tour with him, turns up, uh, there is a story that we get told where she is crossing the river Scamander near Troy late at night and nearly drowns, um, but she's determined that she's going to get across to, to be where Agrippa is. And she survives, but Agrippa's very upset that people didn't try to save her more. And he's like, she nearly died. So there seems to be a strong connection between those two. And some of her children are born in different places. They're not all born in Rome because she's following him around and going on the campaign trail with him. So she does all of this stuff as well, where it's like putting up the right appearances, showing your face overseas to the people. And, you know, I saw Dr. Rad doing the royal way, yep. very much that kind of thing. And <laughs> so she's got these two sides to her as well, where it's like if she has to play serious, she seems to be able to carry it. And when she's got the opportunity to have fun, she's down. All right. Speaking of fun, what did the Roman party have to have to be considered a success? Was it the classic recipe of good booze, good music and sexy people? Or was there more to it? You've got to have good food as well, obviously. Um, I think your guest list is, you know, very important. <laughs> um, location can come into it as well. 
Um, but yeah, getting the right people in the right place at the right time. Mm. Yeah. I don't think the characteristics for a good party have ever really changed. No, no, no. I mean, they might, they might have it set out around three couches, but that's... But they might be lying down to eat. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. Yeah. And there are slaves. Uh, Generally, we don't have slaves at modern day parties. True. <laughs> All right. Sorry about this. I just got to ask because I have you here. Was that bit about vomiting at parties true or is that just oh, a cliche that's not really accurate? It's... It's both yes and no. Um, people talk about the vomitorium that's mm -hmm. unconnected to what happens at parties. Um, those yeah, that's, two, the that's vomitorium. Like you, okay, I'm going to yeah. steal that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's how you like get out of buildings that, like the Colosseum. Yeah. That, de that <laughs> yeah. describes a part of a building. It doesn't describe the act that happens at parties. But yeah. yes, there is there is that idea in, in ancient Rome that you would eat until you were full and then you would go and vomit and then you would come back to eat more. Because that was a demonstration of your ability to be able to consume that much um, and also suggested your wealth because you are able to keep eating. Mm. Um, it's less about the vomiting and more about your ability to continue con to consume. This is obviously very elite people who could afford to do this kind of thing. Obviously, if you're lower down the social spectrum. I don't care what kind of party you're throwing. You're not vomiting up the food. Not intentionally. <laughs> You need those calories. Yeah. Yeah. Unless the fish sauce is bad. And I don't really know how the fish sauce could be any worse. <laughs> what about the bit of like wiping your oily hands into the hair of slaves or a dog at the oh, party? Is that look, real? I mean, I've never heard of that. I've so never heard of that either. I'm, no. I'm going to say I'm not sure. Don't quote okay. me. But I don't know I, where but... I got that from. <laughs> that seems rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Julia. Um, mm. Eventually, I hope I'm not skipping a whole lot, but eventually Augustus passes a set of very strict laws to promote family values. What were these and, and why did he actually pass them? His moral legislation. <laughs> yeah. So he seems to be on a moral legislation. That sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. And he confesses that maybe it was unsuccessful. So... <laughs> He learned his lesson, but laws are laws and they don't get taken away for a long time. He seems to have a prototype sort of moral legislation thing as early as sort of 28 BCE, but it's not until 18 BCE that we get the first sort of official law. But that law also gets modified and adapted by a second law, which comes up in 9 CE. And so... Even in the ancient period, people were a little bit confused about which clauses were for which law in particular. So usually people talk about these laws together as the Lex Julia uh, et Papia, and this forms the moral legislation. And it's got to do with all sorts of things. There's kind of like a suite of benefits if you do get married and you do produce children. Legitimate children. Legitimate <laughs> children, not just any children. Yeah. And then there are the sort of the punishments if you remain unwed or you don't have enough legitimate children. So there's kind of like the carrot and the stick element to these uh, set of moral laws. In today's context, it just seems a bit like extreme right-wing demagogy a little bit no like some sort of a dictator in in like i don't know or vladimir putin just like coming up <laughs> with this like you gotta have kids now 
or else. Yeah. Well, he's trying to, yeah, he's trying to boost that rate, yeah. There's a real concern that, that the elites aren't producing enough children. They're partying way too much. Yeah. Sleeping with people that aren't their uh, legitimate partners. <laughs> yeah, so people are living a lifestyle that is not necessarily conducive to producing lots of children. And legitimate children. Legitimate children. <laughs> and this means... <laughs> But, I mean, ironically, we're coming on the back of a civil war where thousands of people have been executed. So, mm. I mean, are we down numbers because we killed lots of people or are we down numbers because we didn't oh, have right. enough babies? Yeah. I mean, there's some questions to be asked. And there's also that, that aspect, obviously, in the ancient world that whilst it's still dangerous to have children these days, uh, particularly, you know, obviously in some parts of the world you're probably more at risk than at others, but in the ancient world, everybody, doesn't matter what your status is, is at risk when giving birth and the children are at risk. You know, there's obviously that high infant mortality rate. So people, even if they are having lots of children, it's like, well, how many are actually surviving? You know, how many women are actually surviving? There's also that additional risk factor in terms of the, we're doing the, tallying the numbers. Is there also like an element of prudishness on Augustus's part? Oh, massively, yeah. Here. Like, <laughs> For you know, a you man gotta be who married. sleeps around, yeah. <laughs> you you got to be married. You can't have kids outside of your marriage. Like, So is it about numbers or is it also about him being a bit weird about sex? It's, well, it's about numbers, but it's also about control. Yeah. Uh, for sure, because it's not like Augustus holds himself to the, like, the high standard of his moral legislation. No. As he gets older, he tends to seem to be keeping to the moral precepts that he set out a little better than he did when he was a young man. But it's not like he came into this, you know, smelling of roses himself <laughs> as a moral individual. So there seems to be, there does seem to be a little bit of control at play. Um, and I think you can read this, it's very much particularly a control of elite women um, because they're bearing the brunt of the childbirth aspect. Um, but there's plenty of punishments in there as well for elite men um, in terms of like their ability to inherit if they remain unwed and don't have enough legitimate children. And, and who they can marry as well, isn't it? They have to marry women of a certain class. Yeah, right? they yeah. have to they have to marry within their class. So senatorial people have to marry senatorial people and and the idea that you could have other unions, but if it doesn't fall within the legislation, those unions, strictly speaking, don't count for the purposes of the law. So there are lots of ways in which he's trying to control everything about how elite society works from the domestic sphere outwards it's a very right-wing idea yeah as you noted and it seems to be sort of hearkening back to this more pure time that Rome apparently had you know all the way back in like the monarchy in the early republic it's supposedly like it's basically let's make Rome great again by returning to those purer more rural <laughs> simpler times uh, and and so it's part of this whole thing where he sort of idealizes you know country life, the simple farmer who will leave his farm in order to serve the state in war and then return to his farm with no ambitions whatsoever. It, it's kind of those sorts of ideas that we see coming through the more that his rule progresses. I hope he didn't invent a special hat uh, when he <laughs> created these laws. We'll um, never know. Anyway, <laughs> is this... Around the time where he changes his mind about his daughter, Julia the Elder. 
Well, well no. No. As it happens. Yeah. Like 18... There's another husband to go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 18 BC when this first law oh, comes wow. out. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. yeah, like Julia's in her prime. She's in the middle of having kids with Agrippa and traveling around with him on campaign and doing the royal wave. She's having a great time. Um, in 12 BCE, Agrippa dies. So a few years after this moral first suite of moral legislation comes in, um, Agrippa is sadly lost. He's in his 50s. Julia's already pregnant with what will be their fifth child together. So everybody knows that it's his and when he comes out, they're like, yep, that's another Agrippa. Um, Hence why he's called Agrippa Posthumus, because he was born posthumously of his father being alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it's at this point that, you know, Julia might reasonably think that she's done her part to help out her dad. She's had a couple of marriages. She's had five kids, three sons. Um, Augustus is very interested in bringing those grandchildren of his into the fold. So he looks to adopt them and sort of like as if they were his own sons. So that's cute. Um, but he also decides that Julia definitely needs to be remarried almost instantly. And she seems maybe not so down for another marriage, but Jeez. it happens anyway. <laughs> And she gets a little bit keener because <laughs> he seems. Oh. He reminds me of that of of who's that guy in Game of Thrones, the head of the Lannister family. Ah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he has to keep with his own moral a legislation. Bit. He's just like so... you're gonna marry again. You can still produce kids. <laughs> she can. <right? laughs> yeah, she can, and also it means oh, that wow. he's up. He's upholding his. It also means he's upholding the moral legislation that he's introduced because. The idea that you're unwed for a specific amount of time means that she'll be punished. So he's like, well, we've got to organize another wedding for her. So get her off the hook for that. And she ends up getting married to her stepbrother, Tiberius. Who she's kind of keen on because he's apparently pretty hot. Sources <laughs> differ as to whether... Disagree. Like, I know Dr. Rad's just gone in with the hotness vote, but I don't know. Have you seen Tiberius? I mean, don't don't buy what she's putting down. Please. Augustus' um, <laughs> statues are awful. <laughs> but Tiberius, she either, Julia either has a crush on him, which would be weird because they also grew up together, uh, just saying, um, as stepbrother and stepsister, or she is really sort of like just over him him being the stepbrother. Yeah. And she's like, I can't believe you're asking me to marry my stepbrother, like, of all of the people. Yeah. To make things worse. Oh, oh can I do this bit? Can I do this bit? Okay. So Tiberius is already married, of course. And so Augustus has to order a divorce for him. Now, Tiberius seems to be particularly keen on his wife. He seems to genuinely have been in love with her. So sweet. And she was actually... Related to Agrippa, as it turned out. Yeah, so it's weird because his wife is, I think, a daughter of... Yeah, a daughter yeah, of Agrippa. Of Agrippa. From so a previous marriage. That's weird. And basically, he's so sad about being apart from her that he apparently holds a grudge against the next guy to marry her, like, forever. And also, they have to kind of stage manage that he never runs into her because when he sees her, he kind of just, like, 
stops dead in public and just stares at her longingly. I like to imagine like tears in his <laughs> eyes and, you know, hungry eyes playing or something like that. <laughs> so fair to say that Tiberius has not gotten over his first wife. No. Um, and he, so... he's, yeah, he's really traditional. He's really <laughs> conservative, really traditional. It may be the case that the wedding of Julia and Tiberius is doomed from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> But to make things worse, there is also the rumour that Julia has had a long-time love affair with a certain Sempronius Gracchus Mm. that has been going on while she was with Agrippa. And while she does give marriage to Tiberius a good whirl and she falls pregnant and the child sadly doesn't make it, uh, it is apparently not long before she turns to her lover, and being like, get me out of here. This guy is an idiot. I don't want to be married to him. Um, and he feels the same way. <laughs> yeah. They feel the same way. Um, it becomes pretty rocky. Yeah. It's very Charles and Diana, I think. You know, <laughs> Forced into the wedding. Yeah. Except yeah. Julia is Charles, I guess. I don't oh. know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so some rumors suggest that Julia writes a really impassioned letter to Augustus to let him know how ridiculous a human she thinks Tiberius really is. And the rumours also suggest that this letter was penned by Sempronius Gracchus and she just signed her name to it. (laughs) So they were getting their sort of their lover's anger energy out and sent it off to Augustus. Anyway, he's not, he doesn't care. He's like, well, you're married, so you're just going to have to deal with it. And then Tiberius throws a temper tantrum and stomps off to Capri. Because Julia was not his ideal wife. I mean, clearly he had a valid reason to go into self-imposed exile. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do when you're a grown man. You throw all your toys out of the ground and storm off. (laughs) That that last four years. (laughs) Be like, I'm not coming back home. I don't like it there. We get to hang out with like philosophers and astronomers. You did not want me to talk about what happens on Capri. Hey, we're not dealing with that today. (laughs) What happens on Capri? No, no. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's well into his elderly period, and there's no proof that it happened. Is that is that the bit about where Caligula is growing up there with him? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe another episode. So how does the yeah. whole exile of the Julia then happen? Yeah, so Tiberius and Julia, they marry in 11. By 6 BC, uh, Tiberius has gone off on his self-imposed exile. A few years later, in 2 BC, Augustus reaches what is thought to be the pinnacle of his political career in hindsight. And, you know, it was a pretty good year for him. He gets uh, nominated to have the honorific title Pater Patriae, Mm. the father of the fatherland. (laughs) This is also the time where he completes his very special forum. He's like, oh, look what I made. (laughs) Um, So his whole building program's coming together. He's the father of the fatherland. And then he seems to have what I would call a brain snap. 
because a technical term. <laughs> a technical term. In <laughs> Australia, that's a very technical term. Yeah. Um, but it's like he comes into the realization that Julia is living a much more uh, debauched life than he had previously uh, been willing to believe. And he hears this story, or at least he tells this story through a quaestor to the Senate that he has learnt that Julia has been engaging in horrific behaviour. She has been in the forum <laughs> with her friends late at night and there is no debauched thing that she will not do. So she has progressed from adultery, uh, which is apparently everybody kind of knew about, um, but this is the night where she also offers herself as a prostitute. Publicly. Publicly. Public at fornication. The, at the very spot where Augustus was declared patapatriae. Ouch. Mm. <laughs> Salt, meat wound. <laughs> I mean, but this was just like a story, right? This wasn't really happening, was it? Or did she try to make a point? This is what we're not sure about because if it was to be a trial for adultery or for some other crime, Augustus would have to produce witnesses. That doesn't happen. What we get instead is an account that's given secondhand. It's filtered from Augustus to somebody else to be conveyed to the Senate. Everything that is described as a crime is described as happening late at night when reasonably there would be no witnesses. There are a whole bunch of people implicated in it, not just Julia. And they're all people that Augustus wants done away with. So is this some kind of uh, internal coup from Augustus against his own daughter? There are rumours that perhaps she is colluding with certain elite men within her uh, orbit in order to bring around political change. And this is the moment where he's like, enough is enough. Although she hasn't really sort of indicated that she's that way inclined up until now, but maybe something has changed. And everything since the marriage to Tiberius seems to have escalated tensions between Julia and Augustus. But whatever it is, people pay the price. People, some people who are implicated commit suicide because that's usually considered the nobler Roman way to go rather than wait for the uh, crime itself uh, to come out and then to be punished. Absolutely. Julia waits uh, and she is banished. So, yeah, one of the guys she was involved with is one of Mark Antony's sons. Not one of the one, not one of the children that he had with Augustus' sister, another one, Eulus. So yeah, I think he's of, a, a, a son there. of Fulvia. Yeah, a bit of awkwardness there. Yeah, so she seems to be uh, she's arrested on account of treason with attempted parricide. So this idea that somehow she's looking to kill Augustus, which seems pretty bad. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Um, Augustus then moves to issue uh, avoiding of the marriage with Tiberius in Tiberius's absence. He's still on the island. Tiberius is cheering. <laughs> Tiberius, well, no, Tiberius <laughs> isn't cheering. That's true, actually. He does. No, yeah, Tiberius does. goes yeah. into bat for Julia at this point because, and I think this may be a measure of his conservatism as a character because the right thing for a husband to do in this situation would be to defend his wife, and he does that. 
So he goes into bat for Julia, even though he seems to hate her, <laughs> not be interested in being married to her, and has left for another island years ago to stay away from her. Um, he writes lots of letters to Augustus being like, don't banish her. We've got to figure this out. Augustus is like, I've already voided the wedding. Don't worry about it. And Tiberius is like, this is not okay. And Augustus is like, she's on her way to a different island. <laughs> Tiberius is like, what? Um, so it, it gets chaotic. Julius Antonius, this son of um, Mark Antony and Fulvia, who's implicated, he commits suicide. Um, our closest source for that um, suggested it was suicide. Later sources say that he was killed um, and didn't commit suicide. But it was made to look that way. It was made, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, Valeus Paterculus is pretty close to the events. He was, a, he was an eye on the ground during that period, so I'm going to believe him. Um, I don't think he's got any reason to lie. No. He's pretty pro-Tiberius, though. Mm. Mm. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, this is the moment where we also learn about the relationship between Julia and her birth mother, Scribonia, because when Julia is exiled, Scribonia offers to voluntarily travel with her and go into exile as well, even though she doesn't have to. And the conditions are she's not allowed to have wine, and any male visitors have to be approved of by Augustus in advance. So he's really keeping an eye on her, which means that Scriboni is also signing up for a pretty... Father of the Year Award, those two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man knows how to run a country, definitely knows how to run a family. Um, so she's exiled to this tiny island. What I don't understand is why was she being exiled after kind of years and years of alleged affairs, right? Why now? Yeah, and that, that is it that's... just because of the brain snap that Augustus had? <laughs> Could be something to do with the fact that he'd just been given this very special title. Maybe that's what made helped to make his brain snap because he's like, "Crap, I've got all these expectations <laughs> something up to." This is, yeah. I think, this is the actually we're getting to the crux of what is the eternal mystery of this situation yeah. for scholars even now is that there doesn't seem, we don't have access to the evidence of what Augustus really knew yeah. that prompted this moment because he'd been generally quite accepting of Julia and her foibles and her sort of outlandish character, her partying ways up until now. And it's been going on for quite some time. Apparently. Uh, apparently, yeah. And what is it that Augustus learned that produced this particular result? Lots of men are implicated. So there seems to be a sense in which maybe uh, Julia is colluding. That's the possibility, that it was serious enough that there was collusion going on, or that this was a way of rounding up those people neatly, utilising what people already knew about Julia's reputation and scapegoating her in order to get to all of them because she had those social connections with them. After all, she'd already given him what he wanted. She'd so, already had the sons. Yeah. Her marriage to Tiberius wasn't going anywhere, so she's disposable at the at this point in time. I'm sorry, yeah. but I'm liking this guy less and less. I have to be honest with <laughs> don't you. Don't apologize. I hate Augustus. <laughs> oh, don't be like that, guys. <laughs> um. Okay, so she, poor Julia is on this tiny island, right? There's no internet. There's no Netflix, and as there we've just not. heard, there's certainly no, no Netflix men. and chill. No like, men. What is she doing every day there? <laughs> oh. Does she Look, have hobbies? A... What can yeah. she do? So it's not 
it's not as bad necessarily as it sounds, although it's not, not the most exciting island. So Pandateria is off the coast of Naples these days. So you could go and visit it if you want to. There's not much there. But, you know, it's got nice views. There's probably a small township. She's allowed to interact with the local people. She's allowed to sort of live her life. She's not allowed to drink, um, not allowed to have parties, um, not allowed to have uh, extra, extra male visitors. <laughs> but she does have her mum with her. So... I mean, I don't know, maybe there is some rumor that she does have, she did write a memoir. So this might've been the time that she got started. <laughs> she wrote. She wrote. Yeah. She eat, prayed, loved her way through yeah. the exile. <laughs> you know, the sunsets aren't going to be bad. So I don't know. Oh, she's there for a while. So hopefully okay. she finds Okay, so it's not Capri, way. but it's not that bad either. Yeah, like. You know, yeah, could be worse. Um, it's definitely going to get worse. So yeah, <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> How does she? I mean, we're almost at the hour here. I I have to respect your time. How does Julia the Elder meet her end? Or is uh, there more to the story before that happens? Not oh a lot no, more. Yeah. Not, not a lot more. No. Um, so a few things happen. Um, in two CE, she learns that her son Lucius Caesar. Uh, dies so obviously that's a sad moment for her the next year her place of exile gets changed so it seems like in that moment of grief augustus kind of recognizes that maybe you know she gets to come back to the mainland essentially she's still exiled she's still in a small town but she's no longer on an island so that's a win um <laughs> and scribonia continues to go with her be like, I'm going to stick with this gal. <laughs> um, so they, they're clearly friends. And the next year after that, she learns that her other son, Gaius Caesar, dies. So that's tragic. And 10 years later, so we don't hear anything about it for ages. 10 years later, Augustus dies. And this is the moment where Tiberius does something terrible. <laughs> Um, so, so Tiberius essentially becomes emperor and decides to follow the letter of the law, which means to say that up until now, Julia has been living off an allowance that's been granted to her by Augustus, an annual allowance. So she's not wealthy, but she's, you know, she's doing she's okay. Taken care of, yeah. She's taken care of. She can't party or whatever, but she's allowed to like, you know, walk around town and, you know, live a quiet life. She gets her, um, money taken away from her um and her movement is then limited only to the house that she lives in and she is not allowed to see anybody so he basically confines her to the extent that she's no longer capable of having a social life she has no money to live on um and she's completely imprisoned in her own home does this mean that she dies? We don't know. Does this mean that somehow she gets secretly hmm. bumped off? We don't know. It's weird. We just, we don't know. But we don't hear about it ever again after this. So she just disappears from the records. Yeah. I, I, th I think the implication must be that she the, died around this time. I think the, yeah, yeah. I think the implication is that okay. she, she's probably killed off somehow. Um, it would be very unlikely that they would just by Tiberius, off. right? Yeah, um, or Livia. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. 
that she she seems to be completely cut off. And Livia's her, still around? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She lives oh, yeah. well into Tiberius's reign. Yeah, oh, yeah. She's a warhorse. That okay, I'm o- treating I Claudius as a historical document now. Yeah. This is fiction. <laughs> both Augustus and Livia are like freaks of nature in for the ancient world, and that they both live exceptionally long lives. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We don't know how she ends, but Julia, Julia dies. Yeah. And of course, the weird thing is that her one of her daughters, who we now know as Julia the Younger, suffers a similar fate. It's also shrouded in mystery and we don't really know all the details but it's really weird that she also seems to go down this this same path (laughs) that's that's so freaky i mean i know we don't have uh, much more time left but yeah i i found much less info available (laughs) on julia the younger i did have a laugh when reading that she was known for building a large pretentious tacky country house (laughs) <laughs> which people scoffed at. I just pictured like a Russian oligarch billionaire manner, you know, all gold, everything kind of a thing. But yeah, maybe maybe we can talk about her and Capri if we do this again, which I really hope that we will. Yeah, no, look, there's, there's not a lot out there on her. Um, all I can really add to that is that she also owned the smallest dwarf. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, say that again. She apparently, as well as having a very large house, which Augustus hated because he was all for this whole like, let's be simple, you know, I want all my female relatives to work the wool and I'm going to sleep on like a military camp bed. And then she goes and builds this gigantic tacky house and he's like, you didn't get the memo. Uh, But apparently she also owned the smallest dwarf. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I'm just going to be silent again. I don't know how to react to that. Wise choice. Wise I'm using choice. the language of the time. I All right. Add. Not, not my own language, but yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Important disclaimer. Yeah. Since the title of this podcast is You're a Trash, I have to ask you a trashy question at the end. <laughs> not necessarily in this story, but if you could be one of the famous Romans, who would you be and why? Uh. You can choose anyone at all. Man, woman. <laughs> Oh, that's such a tough question. Maximus Commodus. I don't know. <laughs> I think I would have to choose to be Spartacus's wife, just because I'd like to know if I actually existed or whether I'm just a rumor. <laughs> <laughs> you wake up in the ancient that's world awesome and real- <laughs> realize you don't exist. Exactly. Damn it. Yeah. It could be it could get tricky, but I'd like to know. <laughs> Oh. I'd like to know where I'm from, what my name is, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, this is a great question because I'm like, I think for me, I would, it would have to be a Vestal Virgin. And I really don't even know, I don't mind which one. Um, but hopefully not one of the ones that got buried alive. <laughs> hopefully not. But I'm, yeah. I'm kind of just, I'm kind of just interested in getting a sense of the real process Mm. and understanding exactly how that cult worked and operated from the inside. So I'd have to come in as a six-year-old and be like, I'm here to serve (laughs) and, you know, stoke the fire and learn all the rituals. And it's like, oh, that'll be fun. And not have sex ever. Otherwise you'll end up in a hole underground. Yeah, it's risky, (laughs) isn't it? It's risky. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Romans had no chill sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely no chill. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was such a delight. 
of a conversation. Thank we you. have. I, I just want to talk about so many more things. The Vestal Virgins, Capri, Caligula. You know, a bunch of stuff you mentioned. It's just endless. We're on board. And We're on board. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really do hope we do this again. Where can people find your podcast? It's everywhere. Like it's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, yeah. YouTube, I saw you have a channel as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you search for The Partial Historians, we come up all over the place. Wherever you listen to good podcasts, wherever you go on the internet, we'll be there somewhere. Yep, and if you enjoy Roman scandal and you like this kind of stuff that we've been talking about today, we actually do have a book coming out about the Roman monarchy, which is called Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome, and it is filled with men thinking they're having relationships with goddesses uh romans being generally awful to women children murdering their parents you know signs from the gods yeah. <laughs> why does that man have fire around his head nobody knows but we're gonna find out yeah can you get pregnant from a fire maybe maybe you can <laughs> is that a phantom phallus maybe it is maybe it is Maybe it wasn't a dagger that was that Shakespeare was writing. I'm about getting it. that book for for my mother's birthday <laughs> present. I've made up my mind. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again.